you can please turn your Bibles to uh, the Gospel of Mark. We're in chapter 4. Uh, if you, uh, you can use one of the Bibles on your chable, uh, which is a chair-table combination. You'll figure out that next week. Just a little, little hook there that you figure out what a chable is. Um, I think it's page 549 if you do not have a Bible with you. Um, throughout our lives, we all have some event or events that have changed our life forever. Uh, some of those events might be joyful events, uh, marriage, the birth of a child, graduation. Uh, some of those might be very sad events where it's the death of someone you love, a divorce, maybe a failure in your career. Um, I remember years ago, I was at a church and one of the members there, their son who was uh, 24 at the time, uh, was killed in a motorcycle accident. And as we talked for the months and even years after that, she would always say, when I look back on my life, that is the marker that everything is gauged by. Was, was it before my son died or after my son died? We all have some of these events, whether it be joyful or saddening, but they mark us. What we have here in this passage is Jesus trying to tell his disciples something that is going to mark them and change them. And if you've been following us through the Gospel of Mark or you know anything about the disciples, they don't understand, and they completely go in a different direction. But please listen as I read this passage from Mark 9, uh, beginning at verse 30, and I'll read through verse 41. It says, They went on from there and passed through Galilee, and he did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. When he is killed, after three days he will rise. But they did not understand the saying and were afraid to ask. And they came to Capernaum. When he was in the house, he asked them, What were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent. For on the way, they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. He sat down and called the twelve and said to them, If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them. And taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. Whoever receives me receives not me but him who sent me. And John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. But Jesus said, Do not stop him, for no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. As we read Scripture, it's good for us to be reminded that just the reading of Scripture is nourishing to us. It corrects us, it guides us as we think through what is life about. As we look at this text, we're going to look at fear that is brought about through um, this prophecy that Jesus is saying for the second time 
that his impending death and resurrection are coming. It causes fear in the disciples, and then it causes people to be fearful of weakness, especially the disciples here, and then also causes us to be afraid of competition, which those last things are really pride. It always wells up in all of us. In the first section here, Jesus says the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days he will rise. But they did not understand the saying and were afraid to ask him. Really, if you were there and what are the disciples, of course you're not going to understand. Your thought would be, all right, Jesus, we've got a good thing going. We've seen you do miracles. You can heal people. You fed 5,000 people with a peasant's lunch. That means you can feed us wherever we go. When we are with you, you give us peace. You protect us. Why do you keep telling us that you will die and rise again? Really goes back to... It goes back to the question of why did Jesus come? Because if Jesus came merely to do miracles, merely to have an earthly ministry with nothing beyond it, there would be no reason for his death and resurrection. His teaching and his lessons would be sufficient and significant. And he would be put on the shelf with any other teacher, prophet, that we have known through history. There's nothing different if it's only the life of Jesus. This is what makes the difference in the Christian religion, the death and resurrection of Jesus. Because if it is only Jesus teaching on doing good, serving, being honest, and caring for the poor, then really the message of Christianity would be try harder, be better. And that would be it. So if you take out the death and resurrection of Jesus, Jesus' whole message in the Bible does not make sense. And really, then, the whole Bible doesn't make sense. Because it's pointing, then, to nothing. So if you were a disciple, you were one of these twelves, you would probably also be confused. The life of Jesus without his death and resurrection does not do anyone any good. Because then Jesus would just be encouraging people to be more moral and servant-hearted and loving. And if you know your own motives, you would understand, just like I do, that if someone tells me to be more servant-hearted, then I'm going to do my best to be servant-hearted And then I'm going to make sure that whoever is important sees me. Because really, I'm not being servant-hearted. I just want to earn the respect of other people, which really makes it slavery. Because I'm bound to some idol, and I'm bound to what people think of me. And you're probably like me at some level. The statement that frightened the disciples was scary to them. Because here it is pointing to his death. It means he will be gone. And the resurrection, we've heard before that that doesn't make sense to them either. Not the idea of the resurrection, but the idea of if you are coming and you claim to be the son of man, you're fulfilling Old Testament prophecies, why would you die? A few weeks ago, 
uh, the Jewish religion celebrated Yom Kippur. It was on, the, I think, the 13th. And what it is is from sundown on Friday, I think the 12th and 13th, through, all, through sundown Saturday, this is the most holy day in the Jewish religion. And they celebrate it as the Day of Atonement. And instead of the three daily prayers that they would do on their Sabbath, they do five daily prayers. And they commit all that they have to God with the hope that these acts will earn forgiveness. So what they were doing is you, if you celebrated Yom Kippur in a good, honorable way, then you were basically okay for the next year. You were saying, I'm going to dedicate who I am to God, and then I am good until next year, and the next Yom Kippur I will do it again. If you want to read about the Day of Atonement, it's in Leviticus 16. But the difference here in what Jesus is proclaiming is the Christian religion is not us dedicating ourselves to God. The Christian religion is God dedicating himself to us. And the way he does that is in and through Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God. That this day of atonement, this day where the priest went into the Holy of Holies once a year to perform this sacrifice, that this is cleansing the nation of Israel. What we have now in the New Testament is Jesus is the once and for all sacrifice of sin. There will never be another bloody sacrifice. They are finished. Hebrews 10, uh, chapter 10, verse um, 11 says, And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifice, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had suffered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. This is what we celebrate in the Christian religion as the completed work of Christ. We do not have to look for continually sacrificing something. Because the sacrifice has been done, God dedicated himself to us. Which, that doesn't make sense. And if you can grasp that that does not make sense, that you are not worthy, then you are beginning to understand the message of Jesus. Because Jesus did not come for those who are doing their best to try really hard, who are being really faithful. Jesus came for you and me who really are a mess. And we're selfish and we can sense it more and more in our heart. And our pride grows and we try to hide our own sin. We judge other people because of their sin. That is why Jesus came. So here... The disciples, as they're walking with Jesus in his ministry, they're slowly beginning to understand the message of Jesus. But you know, nothing makes sense until Jesus' death and resurrection. And then we see these 11 men go out to the world, proclaim Jesus, and they all, almost all of them, die martyrs' deaths. Here, I don't think they would have died for Jesus. Because they go, it doesn't make sense, you know, I'm just scared of Jesus, I'm not going to ask anything. 
just move on, pretend like you didn't say anything. And, and by the way, let's argue about who's the greatest. Really tell, it doesn't make any sense to them. The disciples' understanding, misunderstanding and fear of Jesus leads them to fear their own weakness and then compete for significance. They're afraid of their own weakness. Verses 33 through 37. And when they came to Capernaum and when he was in the house, he asked them, what were you discussing on the way? Obviously, Jesus knows all things. And they kept silent. Uh, From the way, they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. Uh, Think about how embarrassing uh, that was. Here, Jesus gives this message of the Son of Man will be betrayed by men and will be killed and will rise again. Their logical thought is, well, if Jesus is going to be killed, uh, who's the next greatest? Is there anyone else here that could fill the role? Jesus has done well, but, you know, we could probably do a lot of the stuff he did. So who is it going to be? Who's the greatest? Jesus responds, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. We are all afraid to be servants. We all have some kind of fear in us that we will serve to a certain extent and then we'll call it. And then if they ask more of us, then we can really pull out the, hey, did you not see what I did? Really, that is a complete misunderstanding of servanthood. The servanthood that Jesus is calling his followers too is grounded in his death and resurrection. Just like if you take a section of scripture and you want to understand what the Bible says about love, what the Bible says about being a servant or humility or sin or God and creation and you do not look at how does the resurrection change that, uh, you'll have a misunderstanding of those things. Just take the example of love. We have a common understanding in this world of what love is. It's giving of yourself to someone. It's caring for them. It's loving them in a way that you would like to be loved. Uh, The problem is, in many close relationships and marriages, is that we keep records. And we say, well, I'm doing all this for you, and you haven't done these things. So clearly you don't love me. And we think we are in a good light, and the other person is failing. So you take that into consideration with the death and resurrection of Jesus that God loves you so much that he gave of himself in totality, completely. God held nothing back to show love to you. Nothing. Nothing. Our problem with God's love is that we can't comprehend it. We don't understand it because we put it in our own category of, okay, God says he loves me, so then I'm going to keep God's love by doing all these great things for him, and he's going to be so impressed. Instead of resting in the truth of Scripture, is that you can do nothing to earn God's love. Nothing. It is completely done. And that is grace. 
And that's why then when we look at this idea of weakness, that we can be more honest with our weakness. Because our identity is not held in what you think of me. Though every day I have to repent because that is where my mind goes. But my identity is held in, there's a God who made me. There's a God who loves me, who is transforming me in ways I do not understand. So then I can hopefully love you a little better. Because that's the example of love. This idea of love lines up with the idea of servanthood. Biblical servanthood begins in the rest offered in the cross. So if we do not take into account the completed work of Jesus on the cross, anything else, everything we strive to do in our life, with that out an understanding of that, we're going down roads and we're creating idols to serve other things rather than the God who made us. Really, it begins with your identity, who you are, and then it moves to calling. What are you called to do with that identity? In this passage, Jesus goes on and uses the example of children. He took a child and put him in the midst of them. And taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but the one who sent me. So the argument that the disciples are having is who is the greatest, but Jesus transforms this into a discussion of service. Well, the idea of greatness is more of idea. And then you, Jesus moves it to a discussion about service, about application that comes from love. Uh, child, we all see children around us. Um, some of you have children, some of you do not. I bet 95% of you were children at one time. So you have an idea of what it's like to be a child. A child is uh, teachable. I mean, you can't leave them alone. Uh, if you do, if you're a parent of young children right now, you know what happens. They get into everything. Child is uh, continually learning. It's really, child is weakness wrapped in skin. A child does not have the ability to live on their own. Uh, I heard a story last week. I was at a, a conference, and one of the pastors shared about they have missional communities like we have here. And in their community, there was a woman who was not a Christian, and she would come and spend time with them. And slowly, she began to read the Bible and look at the claims of Christ and see, I believe this. And so she accepted Christ, and women began to, began to meet with her and just talk to her about what does it mean to walk with Christ. Well, uh, this was a great transformation, and so she was put before the church at Easter and gave her testimony. And it was just an amazing testimony where God transforms this person. Well, a few short months later, uh, she wanted to meet with a pastor and came in with her boyfriend and confessed that she was pregnant. And that she'd been lying about um, her life. And she admitted that in her weakness, she was continually failing. And so the pastor's first response was, are you kidding me? I put you in front on Easter. 
you're going to make a fool out of me. But then he thinks more and more. He didn't say that out loud. He thinks more and more. (laughs) You know, you all have those thoughts too, so don't. (laughs) And he thought more and more and said, okay, this woman is a child, and she does exactly what children do. She pooped in her pants. And so what do you do when that happens? Well, you show grace, and you walk with them. And so they talked more and more, and they, she said, yeah, I should probably repent to my community that I've been lying to. So she came to the community, which is full of a lot of people who've walked with Christ for years and years, and would say, oh, I understand the gospel, I understand grace, I understand what Jesus has done. And she began to explain about her lying and about her lifestyle and trying to hide her own sin and not being honest about it. And just kept saying, I am the worst Christian. And there was a man who was vice president of a company that just began to weep and say, no, I don't think you understand. He said to this woman, you are showing me grace. This is not the grace I understand. And this is a woman being honest with her weakness. But this goes against our culture. What we think we should do is lead with your strength, Hide your weakness or hire to your weakness so no one will see it. And that really permeates into the church. Um, Because we don't like to be honest with our weakness. So as the disciples, they fear Jesus in the beginning because he tells them he's going to die and be resurrected. And they don't understand. And then they fear weakness and they want to be known as the greatest And then the disciples fear competition. Verse 38, John said, Teacher, we saw some casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop them because they were not following us. Jesus said, Do not stop them. For no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. This idea of competition Uh, It really uh, permeates the church. And if you've been a Christian a long time or observed Christians around you, you probably see that and you probably hear that a church will be in some kind of competition with another church. And they will be offended if this other church is growing. And they will say, oh, that church is growing. Well, they're only growing because they care about numbers. Or they're only growing because they just want to entertain people. Instead of saying... If it's a church that is preaching the death and resurrection of Jesus, we're on the same team. There is no competition. People may ask you, well, why are you involved in a church plant? Don't we have like 7 million churches in Colorado Springs for the 500,000 people? Why would you start another one? Well, the great thing about a church plant is people will feel more comfortable coming into a culture that is being created. They're less threatened by a cafeteria and sitting on a table. See, it's going to be, it's going to catch your ear. It's going to go worldwide. Um, so and as a church plant, we're not looking to attract people from other churches. Uh, what we're looking to do is build relationships with people who do not believe the way we believe. And to love and care for them. And have those relationships. And pray that God would do his mighty work in us and in them. 
That's what we're called to do. So sometimes as Christians, we compete and we talk bad about others. Maybe it's a pastor who's very gifted and talented and draws a crowd because we think somehow that God's Holy Spirit cannot work through someone who is gifted and talented. It can only work through people like me. Verse 32, it says the disciples were afraid to ask Jesus. Jesus, being very compassionate and merciful to them, why would they be afraid to ask him about his impending death and resurrection? Thinking about this, I wonder if it's the disciples realizing that if Jesus gives his life all of himself for them, then what he has taught them is that they then are to give all of their life in love and service to the people around them. That's a scary, scary thought. If someone gives their life for you, would that not create some fear in you? That now someone, they gave you everything. It does have some fear in it. But the great message of Jesus is Jesus does not do that to cause us fear. He does that so we can understand grace and understand grace completely. This is the great exchange of the Bible. Someone glorious giving themselves for someone who is ruined, who is broken, who is hurt. This is the great exchange. This is the story of the Bible. This is the story of grace. One writer says, the goal of the cross is not to convict you of sin, but to convince you of grace. That's the message of Jesus. So the message of Jesus is that he came and gave his life so that then we have the ability, by trusting in him and his gift of grace, that we can be honest with our weakness. And then we can be honest with our competition of being right, of being the best, and acknowledge my identity is not tied up in that. My identity is wrapped in someone gave their life so that I could have life. So as we come to the table this morning, this is the Lord's table. And what we celebrate here is Jesus giving his life completely. This table does not say, now the rest of the day, you have to try really hard. This table says, uh, this is the gift of Jesus for you. And you're hurt, and you're wounded, and you're weak, and that is okay. Because that is who this table is for. In Matthew 26, uh, Jesus, this is the message of institution of the Lord's Supper. It says, now when they were eating, he took the bread and after, his, and after he blessed it, he broke it and gave it to his disciples and says, said, take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup and when he had given thanks to them, uh, saying, drink of it, all of you. 
For this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. This is why the death and resurrection of Jesus is so significant. Because Jesus gave his life to forgive you of your sin. We can rest in that. And the promise is he will not celebrate this until we are with him. And that is the great promise. Uh, The good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. I am the bread of life. It says he who eats of this will live. Jesus says, I am the resurrection of the light and the life. Though, he, uh, though you die, yet shall you live. That there is life beyond this day. There is life beyond your physical understanding of things. And that life is glorious. And that life is promised by God. And we have it in his word. So this morning, as we come to the table... We come because Jesus calls us to. Jesus gives his life for us, symbolized by the bread, and his blood symbolized by wine. This is a um, nutrient, spiritually nutrient-rich meal. I remember a year or so ago, Kara read a book on nutrient-rich food. And uh, I think in, in our lives, some, many times we lack nutrient-rich spiritual things. And we look to other things that are a lot more exciting, a lot more flashy, thinking those are going to feed us, those are going to nourish us. God's promise in his word is this is where he meets you. And this is, these are common elements of bread and wine, but they nourish us. Because we can remember the death and resurrection of Jesus.